Well, we're in 1 John chapter 2 this morning. If you have a Bible, I would encourage you to turn there with me. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. Uh, you can stop by and get one uh, on your way out right in the middle of the foyer there. There's a, we have a Bible that we would love to give you. Uh, I mentioned a few weeks ago in a sermon that uh, when I was a kid, teenager growing up in Dayton, Ohio, we went away on vacation one time and came back and our house had been broken into and there's blood all over the walls and smashed windows and I was surprised at the, the, the number of responses I got from that story uh, from you. Some of you had some very specific ideas that such a person should be treated who would do something like that. Uh, what I didn't share with you at the time, though, was how that experience really kind of changed my parents, at least a little bit. They, uh, they became extremely vigilant, as you might imagine, at making sure that all the doors in the house were locked, that they were locked when we were there, when we went on vacation, and certainly uh, when we went to bed, they would uh, make multiple trips to double check to make sure that all the doors uh, in the house were locked. In fact, even when they come to visit us in Madison, uh, before they go to bed, they'll, they'll ask us, hey, are all the doors locked? This is of, of great concern to them. And it, understandably so. You want to make sure that the doors of your house are locked when the people inside are sleeping. And there are other things in life that you want to really do your very best to make sure of. You want to do your best to make sure if you're traveling on a long driving trip that you're, you have a full tank of gas that you can get to where you need to go. Or if you're traveling internationally, you want to make sure that you have your passport, you have the, the documents you need. You want to make sure if you're going camping or if you go camping, you have a bonfire that before you leave, you make sure that the fire is extinguished. And you could, you know, we could go through and list dozens and dozens of things uh, that you want to make sure of. Well, there's nothing in life more important than making sure that we belong to God, than making sure that we are reconciled to God, that we've been made right with God, that we are the object of His love and we're not uh, going to spend eternity in the darkness of hell. This is something we want to make sure of. Well, as uh, Pastor Chris mentioned, we're in 1 John. This is our fourth week of a study called As Children of God. And John writes to a group of believers who want to make sure that they belong to God. They want to make sure that they're right with God. Now, some of these believers are, are going, undergoing persecution. Uh, they, they're being persecuted from their faith, and they're starting to wonder, how much longer can I endure this kind of persecution? There's another group in the churches uh, of Ephesus that, where John writes, the surrounding area, that there's another group that they're hearing things about Jesus, and they're not really sure if they're right. They don't think they sound right, but... They don't know for certain, and so they're starting to question their own faith. And then there's a third group, and, and they're, they're just they're worried about their standing with God. Uh, they're, they're confused. They're, they're not really sure. What does it actually take for a person to, to uh, be right with God? And so John writes to all of those uh, folks, uh, among others, as a way to, to reassure them that they belong to God. This letter addresses three groups, as I mentioned, the exhausted, the confused, and the anxious. And if you're a Christian this morning, you know that uh, you're going to experience and have experienced and will experience all of those things. Uh, confusion, exhaustion, anxiety. And so this is a letter that is, is written to us. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit, breathed out by God himself, and it is for our good. And we believe, as we talked about, just this, this group, new group of people and starting point this morning... We believe in, in expository, expositional preaching, so we work our way through the text, making sure that when we look at a specific passage that we're keeping it 
in the broader context. Just like so many aspects of the Christian life, there are errors that we can make on either side. And here there are two errors, errors that we can make as it results to, relates to our assurance. One of those is to be constantly worried all the time. How does God feel about me? Does he love me? How, does, uh, how do I stand? Where do I stand with God? So that's, that's an error that we want to avoid. That's not what God's called us to. But the other error is to never actually reflect on, never consider seriously, am I really trusting in Christ? Have I turned in faith to Jesus Christ? Am I, do I love God and love neighbor? Am I trusting in the finished work of Jesus? Am I living my life for God's glory? And either one of those are errors we want to avoid. And, and John writes to help his readers avoid both of those errors. Theologian and pastor Mike Bullmore writes, John helps all professing believers avoid a dangerous presumption, and he helps all genuine believers avoid a debilitating uncertainty. Jesus makes it very clear that it's possible to be self-deceived when it comes to our relationship with him. In fact, Jesus had people who had come to him, and some of those were very religious people. And he says at one point, very famously, he says, many will call me Lord, Lord, and yet I will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. No, those are, of course, the worst words that a person could ever hear. And in this letter, John will offer what, what many have called three critical tests by which we can discern whether or not we truly know God. The first test is theological. We'll see that in chapters 3 and 4, doctrinal. In other words, do we really believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Come to save a sin-cursed world. So that's the theological. Uh, the next one is moral. The next to aspect of that test is moral, and that is, am I obeying the commands of Jesus? In fact, speaking of religious people, the, Jesus said, what, offered one of the most penetrating and scathing questions that he ever asked to a group of religious people who came to him, and he said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? So for Jesus, obedience that, that flows out of faith was actually a key indicator of a person's standing with God. And then the third test is, sometimes called the, the social test or the love test, and that is, do we love other believers? Do we love other Christians? Are you characterized by love for your brothers and sisters in Christ? Now, of course, that brings up a question, a lot of questions, but one of them is, what does love look like? What does this love look like that would be the indicator of true faith in Christ? And how do we love each other in that way? So this morning, we're going to answer those questions. We're going to see three things. The nature of Christian love, the, uh, the, uh, the quality of Christian love, and the ability to love Christianly. So the nature of Christian love, the quality of Christian love, and the ability to love Christianly. Look at 1 John uh, chapter 2. We're going to cover verses and mention uh, 7 through 11. Let me read the whole section here reads the word of the Lord. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him. 
There is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So I'm going to come back in just a moment to the way John addresses these churches, but um, it gets kind of confusing pretty quickly. John says, I'm writing you, I'm not writing you a new command, I'm writing you an old command. It's an old command that you had from the beginning, but actually it is a new command. And so we read that and say, well, is it a new command or is it an old command, right? And the answer, of course, is yes. It is an old command in that it is precisely what they'd heard when they first heard the gospel. So from the very beginning, they were, told, they were taught and called to believe in Christ. Repent and believe in Jesus. Turn from your sins and embrace Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But that faith, that belief, that belief then would then manifest in certain actions, namely obedience to Christ's commands. And one of those commands is to love one another. So it's an old command. It's when they heard the, from, the, from the very beginning, John says, from the first time they heard the gospel. But it was a new command, verse 8, quote, in him, in Christ, in that now that love has been defined and exemplified by Jesus Christ in his life, death, and resurrection. See, when John's audience first heard this, this quote, old command, uh, from the beginning, verse 7, it was before Jesus had died on the cross, uh, before Jesus was, was raised from the dead and inaugurated the new age. This is why John would say in the last part of verse 8 that darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. So this command to love is new in that, and this is so important, love finds its ultimate fulfillment and definition in the person, work, and teaching of Jesus. And that's how these Christians are to love one another. Now, everyone has their own idea, don't they, of what love should look like. Someone might say, if you loved me, has anyone ever said that to you and then followed with, you know, a contingency. If you loved me, you would buy me a car. I've heard that one. If you loved me, you would pay for my college. If you loved me, you would accept my lifestyle. You would endorse my behavior. A man said to me recently, I, I, I told my wife, if you, if you do this one thing with me every day in a row for 10 days, I'll know that you love me. I'm not going to say what it was. It doesn't take a lot of imagination. Uh, but he said, if you do this one thing every day for 10 days, I'll know that you love me. I said, How's, how'd that work for you? He said, not good, actually. Not good. Based on the results, I'm not really sure that I'm very loved. Um, but we have these things that, you know, if, if you loved me, you would do this. Everyone has their own idea of what it means to love someone and what it's like, what it feels like to be loved. And yet... Jesus is the one who defines and exemplifies what love actually is. In fact, in the same letter, in just a few chapters, uh, John will say, this is how we know what love is. How? Christ died. Christ laid down his life for us. In other words, we can't even know what true love is apart from Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And so in order for us to understand what love is, we're commanded to love. So love is actually a test of those who truly belong to Christ. But in order to know what that love is, we have to look at who Jesus is and what he accomplished. If our view of love is not shaped by and defined by the real historical Jesus, 
then love becomes strictly subjective and, and arbitrary. And it means a bunch of different things for a bunch of different people. And, and it's also then constantly culturally redefined by, again, different trends and humanistic arguments. But if God defines what love is through the person and work of his son, then love has a permanence and an objective meaning. When John says that he's giving them a new command, but one that's also an old command, he's actually filling out what love looks like, looks like in a post-resurrection world. And here's what we see. This is our first point as it relates to the nature of love. Love is sacrificial. It provides what is best for the beloved, often at great personal cost. See, love provides what's best for the beloved, which is just the object of that love, not necessarily what is easiest, not necessarily what will make the object of love the happiest at the moment, but true love is sacrificial in that it provides what's best what's ultimately best for the object of that love. What we're persuaded to believe in our culture is that love approves, endorses, celebrates, and provides whatever the object of that love wants the most, even if that's not what's best for the person. But is that really love? Not according to John's explanation in this letter. So imagine if... Imagine if a doctor did an MRI on a patient and through the MRI discovered very clearly that the whole patient's the body was, was just riddled with cancer, filled with cancer uh, throughout the whole body. Uh, but in the interest of keeping this man happy, the doctor went out and told him, your cancer is completely gone. There's not a cell of cancer in your body. Now, I can't imagine anything that would make that man happier at that moment. I mean, can you, can you imagine hearing that news? I'm totally cancer-free. I mean, th this person would be absolutely elated, overwhelmed with joy, probably couldn't resist giving the doctor a big hug, just so excited and happy. But would that, be, would that have been a loving thing for the doctor to do? Of course not. We would all agree that that would be uh, cruel, not loving, uh, criminal malpractice to be sure. And yet in so many areas of life, we're told that making someone immediately happy is the most loving thing we can do. But that's not what John tells us in this new commandment, which is actually an old commandment. Now think about a situation where a man says that he's leaving his wife. She just doesn't excite him anymore. She doesn't move him anymore. He just finds her impossible to live with. He's not happy. And he tells his friends, he said, I'm leaving my wife. She just doesn't do it for me anymore. We've grown apart, and I just don't care about her anymore. And his friends, they actually affirm his decision to leave his wife. They don't want to see him unhappy, they say. Well, are the man's friends really loving him? If they were, they would alert him to the pain and the agony and the upheaval and the grief that's caused by divorce, they would warn him about God's discipline on those who claim to be his but then flaunt that covenant, and they would call him to repent. Now, he probably wouldn't like it, and I've had to do this a number of times over the years. It's very seldom well-received. 
This guy probably is not going to like it. That counsel will not make him immediately happy, but that would be loving, the most loving thing. What about a situation where one of your children really, really wants something really badly, and yet you know that that's actually not best for your child? But you also know if I don't give my child this, then I'm going to get the silent treatment. You know, he may be angry. He may avoid me. He may be upset. He may throw a fit, whatever. And you say, you know what? I don't want to deal with all that again. And so even though I know this is bad for my child, it's going to harm him. I'm just going to give him what he wants. Well, nobody would say that's loving parenting. Nobody would say that that's a good approach. Is it loving to approve of something, to give your child something that may make him immediately happy but ultimately could cause his ruin? Or what about someone who's caught in sin, a professing Christian? They're living a lifestyle that is in defiance to God's commands. And we know that this will only result in heartache and despair and self-loathing and even God's discipline potentially. The sin could actually lead them away from God and cause them to turn against God. Is it loving to condone that sin? Is it loving to approve of that, even though it may make your approval may make them immediately happy for the short run? Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was the pastor and professor in the early 20th century, and He was ultimately executed by the Nazis for his resistance to Hitler. But Bonhoeffer says endorsing another professing believer's sinful behavior is actually the least loving thing we can do. Here's what he writes. Nothing can be more cruel than the, and probably this word tenderness would be better in quotes, but nothing can be more cruel than the tenderness that consigns another to his sin. Nothing can be more compassionate than the severe rebuke that calls a brother back the path of sin. Now, now correcting someone may, may cost us. It may even cost us a relationship. It may cost us dearly. That's why I said in my first point that love is sacrificial. It provides what's best for the beloved, often at great personal expense. Now, of course, the personal expense that we incur is not only the, the pain of saying hard things. It's weeping with those who weep, even if it means staying up all night. It's giving of our resources, even if it means that we go without something we want. It's rejoicing with those who rejoice, even if it means they've gotten something that we really want but don't have. It's getting up early and staying up late if it's needed to walk alongside those who are hurting, those who are our brothers and sisters in Christ. Love is sacrificial. That's the nature of it. But what about the quality of that love? Look at verses 9 and 10. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother, is still in darkness. Now, in the light is, is, a, is a euphemism or metaphor for walking in the ways of God, walking in, in relationship with him. Whoever hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. You ever seen anyone with these, the, the love-hate knuckle tattoos? Uh, I've seen a lot of people with these over the years. Let me just give you an example of what this looks like. Um, you know, the, on one hand, one knuckle you have, or one hand love, and on the other, other hate. Um, these tattoos kind of came into the American consciousness in 1955 when, when Rod, Robert Mitchum uh, wore them in the movie The Night of the Hunter, uh, in which he played, of all things, a psycho preacher and a serial killer. 
which is not super helpful for those in my profession. Um, but he had these tattoos on, and, and that, that, after that point, kind of became a cultural phenomenon, and you know, maybe you've seen somebody with these. And what's, what the person who has these tattoos is saying is, I have this sort of epic battle between love and hate. I mean, I, I, the, the things I want to love, I really want to love, I end up hating. The things that I don't want to hate, I end up hating. The things that I, 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 I want to hate, I, I don't, I love instead. And so there's this constant struggle, this constant battle. Um, I want to love, but I can't. But then sometimes love comes fighting back and so on. Well, what John is saying in this passage here is that for the believer, love must triumph over hate. Now, the word hates in, in verse 9 appears in the present tense, which indicates a, a continuous ongoing attitude or disposition. So to hate someone in biblical thought is to have a settled an ongoing emotional disgust or loathing for that person. Now there are times, there are times when, when hate is used uh, to refer to a choice, an active choice, um, but most of the time hate refers to something emotive, something visceral, something almost palpable. It, it, if love yearns for another person's good, then hate longs for another person's demise. C.S. Lewis uh, suggested if you want to know if you hate someone, he said, kind of do this mental exercise. Think about how you would feel if that person, excuse me, were exposed to be a, a criminal or that person had something terrible happen in his or her life. How would you feel? Would you be secretly glad about that? Would you secretly celebrate? He says, if so, you hate that person. You have hatred in your heart. If you have someone in mind and you would love to see something terrible happen to that person, then it's possible, in fact, maybe likely, that you're harboring hatred uh, in your heart. Do you have someone in your life that you're, you're rooting for their demise? Have someone in your life that you, you celebrate. I mean, you don't do it outwardly or publicly, but you celebrate privately and inwardly when they fail. Someone that you're disgusted with when you just when you even think about them. That's hatred. And John says we cannot hate another brother or sister in Christ and call ourselves a Christian. Now it doesn't mean that we won't struggle with people at times. It doesn't mean that we won't have conflict. It doesn't mean that that we may that we won't ever get annoyed by someone. These things can happen and not represent hatred. It doesn't even mean that we're going to enjoy everybody to the same degree, right? There are people in your life that you really enjoy, and there are people that you're trying so hard to enjoy, but it's, it's a challenge. There are people in your life, in my life too, that they energize me. If I'm with that person, I feel energized, refreshed, reinvigorated. Right? And then there are person in our lives that, people in our lives that they wear us down. That's not the same as hatred. To hate someone, again, in biblical thought, is to have this ongoing attitude, this disposition where you really want to see them fail. You can't stand, just thinking about them uh, makes you angry. Now, it doesn't mean if, it doesn't mean if you've hated someone or, or if you currently hate someone that you're hopeless. No, repent before the Lord. Repent and be reconciled to the other person. Confess your sin to the other person and be reconciled. Well, if I was an intern in pastoral ministry, 
in 2000, getting ready to participate in the Lord's table. And I, I was sitting in the very front row, and this guy tapped on my shoulder. And I hadn't talked to him in a while. Big, big, tall guy, 6'7". And he leaned over and he said, I've got to confess my sin to you. I have harbored hatred against you in my heart. And I had no idea. If you, if you have someone right now that that comes to mind when you think about hatred, go to that person, repent, and be reconciled. Enjoy the forgiveness that is ours in Christ. If we do hate our brother, then John says, we're living in the darkness and we're blind. In other words, we are spiritually dead. We don't know Jesus. We are stumbling around in the dark, spiritually speaking, completely oblivious, headed down the path toward destruction. To the, contrary, to the contrary, verse 10, whoever loves his brother abides in the light. Look at verse 10 again. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. So sandwiched in between these two hate verses, verses 9 and 11, is the statement about love. And that placement, by the way, is intentional, structurally and theologically, in keeping with this theme of contrast, old Versus new, light versus darkness. John helps us to understand what love is by contrasting it with hate. So if hate is emotional, palpable, visceral, then so is love. It's opposite. Here's our second point as it relates to the quality of love. Love is emotive. It delights in the see, in seeing the beloved thrive. Love is emotive. It delights in seeing the beloved thrive. So too often, and I've heard this so many times, and I've read articles on this, too often Christian love, biblical love, is presented as strictly a, a commitment, just an action. And to be sure, it is a commitment. It is an action. But it's more than that. It is a motive. True love does actually feel. And I've seen Christian article after Christian article over the years with titles like, Biblical love is not a feeling, it's a decision. And love is a choice, not an emotion. And yes, we affirm in a thousand ways, it is a choice, it is a decision, it is a commitment. But surely it's more than that. If a man brought flowers home to his wife and she said, oh, thank you so much. And he said, don't thank me, I'm just following through on the commitment I made. That would ruin the gift, wouldn't it? I mean, that, if, if she said, I am so grateful that you would think of me this way. I said, well, it's a choice I made a long time ago. What else am I going to do? That would not endear that person to his wife. Uh, consider the, the example of Jesus, whom we've already established, defines and exemplifies love. When Jesus looked over the city in her lost state, he was, he was vexed at the soul level, the gospel writers tell us. Because he loved his people. He felt for them. When Jesus lost his friend Lazarus, he wept. Because he loved his friend. Now we can argue uh, that what Jesus was really weeping over was the effects of sin in the world. Not the death of his friend. But even so, Jesus was moved with pain. Because of the hurt that he saw in the world. Because he loved people. He actually felt for people. So we've seen that, that love is sacrificial. That's the nature of it. We've seen that it's, it's a motive. That's the quality of it. But how do we love difficult people? Maybe in your mind you have somebody that right now the, the, the image of their face is just as clear as it could be. And you're saying, how do I love that person? Hopefully it's not my face you're seeing. But how do I love that difficult person? This person who has harmed me. This person who has wronged me. 
This person who has abandoned me and betrayed me, how do I love that person? Well, there are some practical things we can do. Uh, just spend time with other believers. That's how we get to know people and, and, and actually love people. Focus on what matters, that is to say, what you have in common and, what, and not what separates you. Be self-suspicious. You know, if, there, if there's a challenge or a problem in your relationship, recognize that, that you're probably, uh, at least in part, a reason for that. Learn to appreciate what it is that makes the other people different. How they uniquely reflect the image of God in ways that maybe you don't. This is really, this is so much of, the, the, of marriage, right? I mean, learning to, learning to see what it is that makes the other person different and actually valuing and cherishing that. So, you know, Janine and I, we're, we're very different personalities. And very early on, there were the things that made her different than me just annoyed me. Why wouldn't you be like me? Why wouldn't you say it like I say it? Why wouldn't you do it like I do it? And then I realized, praise God, she's not like me. She handles things, so many things in, in such a different way, in a better way. One of the ways that we learn to love people is to, is to learn to value, again, what it is that makes us different. But as helpful as those hopefully are, something else is actually required in order, to us, in order for us to enable to, to love each other deeply. And that brings us back to the opening greeting of this section. John begins by verse 7. Look back at verse 7 by addressing these Christians as beloved. So before he tells them to do anything, before he issues any warnings to love, not to hate, before he gives them any imperatives on how to relate to each other, he reminds them of this beautiful indicative of what's already been done. They are loved by God. They are the objects of God's eternal and unchanging affection. Pastor and theologian Ray Van Nest writes, John addresses his readers as beloved for the first time and will do so regularly throughout the rest of this letter. This is no mere convention. Preparing to call them to love one another, John refers to the fact that they are loved by John and by God. And I love that. Preparing to call them to love one another. He knows. He's going to tell them to do some very hard things. You're going to have to love some people that you have a difficult time getting along with. But as he prepares them for that, as the motivation and the fuel for this imperative to love one another, he reminds them of this indicative, what God has already done, and that is that before they were even born, before the world was even created, before God spoke the world into existence, they were already loved by him. He had already set upon them his covenantal affection, and his love is not fickle. So I mentioned one of the things that makes this command new is the fact that it is defined and exemplified in Jesus' life, so in his, his death and resurrection. So if you want to know what love is, you have to look to Jesus. Well, another way that this is a new command is that because of Christ's death and resurrection and his mediatorial work, Christians now... It's new because Christians now have the possibility of obeying the command uh, in the Spirit. So what this means is when Christ died on the cross, He paid the penalty for our sins, for those who believe, and He reconciled us to God. He paid our sin debt and brought us to God. And when we believe on Jesus, we are united with Him. He then is our advocate, as Pastor Adam explained so well last week. So if you're in Christ right now at this very moment... Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. He is advocating for you. He is pleading your case. When you sin, even at, this, at the very time you are sinning, 
Jesus is right next to the Father saying, that one is mine. I paid for that sin. He belongs to me. There's no condemnation for that one. So right now, he's at, at the Father's right hand, interceding for us, advocating for us. And even when we fail to love someone the way that we should, Jesus is right there saying to the Father, I loved that person perfectly in his place. Consider my love his. So that's what Jesus is doing for us right now. And the Father then receives that, not reluctantly or begrudgingly, but gladly. But as great as all that is, there's more to it than that. Because he is God, not only is Jesus physically present at the right hand of the Father right now, he is spiritually residing in us. Christ resides in us spiritually. Speaking to Christians, the Apostle Paul writes, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. So for those who have believed, for those who have trusted in Jesus, they have been made alive spiritually and are now indwelled by the Spirit of the living Christ. And the power to obey any of Christ's commands, especially the command to love one another, is possible only by virtue of our union with Christ, Christ in us. Here's our final point as it relates to the ability to love. The ability to love is a supernatural gift enabled by the indwelling presence of Jesus. So yes, spend time with people and learn to value what makes them different and pray that God will give you the ability to love, but ultimately, your ability to love that difficult person is going to come through Christ in you. As you plead with the Holy Spirit for strength, as you cry out to Jesus himself for the ability to love difficult people. Now, maybe this morning you have someone in your life, as I mentioned, and you're really tempted to hate that person. Maybe, I hope this is not the case, but maybe you hate her this morning. Maybe you hate him this morning. Well, the only way to obey Christ's command to love is to depend completely and fully on Jesus, crying out to him in desperate prayer, recognizing the work that he's already done on your behalf. You are already loved. You are already forgiven. You are already cleansed. And you have been loved by God in Christ so that you would love others. If you have someone in your life this morning, the beginning place, again, is to, is to repent. Repent to the Lord. Confess and repent to the person that you hate. And if you're having, again, you're thinking, well, I just, I just don't know how to love. Then, then you, you look at Christ's example. Again, it was sacrificial. It was generous. It was emotive. He actually felt for the people he loved. And we depend on him every moment as his spirit promises, to, the spirit promises to pour out the love of God in our hearts, Romans 5, and to enable us to love with the love that we have received. It, it, it's, it's a difficult spiritual work. It is spiritual work because it requires us to depend fully on the Lord. But it is, it is an ability that Christ himself has promised to supply. Let's pray.